Hi everyone, welcome back to Science on Trial and Error. My name is Kasia Kuzmiczkowalska and I'm the host of this podcast. It's my great pleasure to welcome you back after the short break we had in October. The reason for the break was that I had a rather difficult time at work, which also affected my health and I ended up falling a bit behind with all things podcast related. But we are back and we are back with a lot of great stuff. I'm so grateful that you all keep coming back and that you share the podcast with your friends. I'm so amazed that we reach milestones which I wasn't expecting to reach, like how many of you download the episodes or message me afterwards. It's truly heartwarming and magical. And actually, it is through this community effect that I got in touch with today's guest. But first, let me introduce her properly. Daisy Shearer comes from the United Kingdom and she's a PhD candidate in experimental condensed matter physics at the University of Surrey. Her current research is focused on semiconductor spintronics and it's used for quantum technology applications. Prior to her PhD, Daisy obtained an integrated master's degree in physics from the University of Surrey And for her master's thesis, she worked in industry to develop semiconductor lasers for telecommunication. Daisy is very passionate about science communication and education. She is currently pursuing a graduate certificate in teaching and learning alongside her PhD. Daisy's blog and Instagram page called Notes from the Physics Lab are a scientific outreach resource with brilliant explanations of different concepts from physics field in a truly accessible way. But it's also an honest account of her PhD journey, her experiences of being a female autistic scientist, her passion for science and her struggles with mental health. She's committed to raising awareness about mental health, equality, diversity and inclusion in science with focus on disabled and neurodivergent people. She wants to challenge public perception of autism and start discussions to gain more understanding, empathy, and support. Her project Neurodivergent in STEM is a platform for neurodivergent people who work in STEM fields, allowing them to share their stories and encouraging communication and accessibility in science. I'm very grateful that thanks to this podcast, I got a chance to meet Daisy and hear her story. I really appreciate her honesty and vulnerability. She's a lovely person with a big heart who really loves science and has fantastic skills in communicating it in an easy way and who wants to make the scientific world a better place. If you don't follow Daisy yet, please do that. And now enjoy listening to our conversation. Please welcome Daisy Shearer. Hi, Daisy. Thank you for accepting the invitation to be the guest on my podcast. I'm very happy we will have a chance to talk about your work and your story. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> so where are you right now? Are you in Surrey? I am in Surrey right now, yeah. I, I live in Guildford, so very wet day today here in England. Oh, uh, is it cold? But, yeah. Oh yeah, autumn has come. <laughs> Here still we are having a lot of sun, I must say. So it's oh. actually quite quite nice in Vienna. I mean, it's getting colder, but it's mm -hmm. been extremely sunny this last week. So I'm still trying to enjoy it as long as I can. Uh, normally I start by asking people how they like to work in the lab and whether they can listen to the music or not. So I was wondering if you use music 
to help you focus or is it something that actually doesn't help you at all during working? Yeah, I, I usually do listen to music when I'm working in the lab or in the office. I like to listen to instrumental music. No lyrics, but yeah, I'm usually listening to music actually. That's nice. Is it more classical music or like movie soundtracks? Uh, a mixture actually. I'm a big fan of sort of Studio Ghibli soundtracks. That's Ooh. like my go-to. <laughs> nice. But yeah, I like a little bit of classical music as well. That's super nice. So I actually know you from Instagram, where you run your profile called Notes from the Physics Lab. And you also run another page that is called Neurodivergent in STEM. And it's been actually very nice getting to know you through your posts and through your blog as well. But I think it would be cool first to discuss maybe your current work and then we can go to your other initiatives and other projects because I think that you are doing a lot so we can really go into more details then. Yeah. You are a PhD candidate in condensed matter physics at University of Surrey, right? Yes, that's correct. When did you start your PhD? I started my PhD in 2018. So it's nearly, it's like three years, right? Yeah, I've done a three, three, four years. So I've got one year left, fingers crossed. I have had an extension because of the pandemic, a six month extension, but I am hoping to complete within the four years if I, I can. I see, I see. I would like to hear more about your work. It's actually the field of the quantum physics and you're working on uh, semiconductors, spintronics. And this sounds... I mean, okay, I know what a spin is. This, I mm -hmm. know, I remember this from my chemistry class and also a bit of a physics during my bachelor's. Yeah. And I kind of know a bit about quantum physics because we had a guest who works on qubits. Mm -hmm. But I would really like you to, to maybe give us an overview that would be suitable for people who really don't know what is what this crazy word means. <laughs> Yeah, my work is in the subfield of semiconductor spintronics. Um, and that essentially means that I work with a type of material called semiconductors, which is sort of between an insulator and a conductor. And the nice thing about semiconductors is we have a lot of tunability in engineering their properties. I've worked with semiconductors since my master's research when I was working on semiconductor lasers for telecommunications. So that was all about exploiting the quantum mechanical properties of semiconductors because mm -hmm. they're very they have a lot of quantum stuff going on um, and using that to have these lasers switch on and off quicker so essentially the quicker you can switch a signal on and off the faster you can send uh, information down an optical fiber so okay. so that's what my research from my master's was on and then I wanted to carry on in semiconductors which is how I ended up um, in spintronics. Spintronics basically means spin transport electronics I specifically look at semiconductors, but some people look at other materials like metals, and it's all about understanding electron spin. So electron spin is the angular momentum of an electron, and this property, it's really difficult to kind of conceptualize. It's called spin <laughs> because if we thought of it classically in terms of classical physics, it would be like a spinning ball of charge, but of course, electrons aren't really little balls that fly yeah. around an atom. That's where all the quantum mechanics comes in. 
And yeah, my work is essentially understanding how the property of spin can be manipulated and studied within semiconductors and to make new technologies. So you mentioned qubits and, and electron spin qubits are one type of qubit, but I'm also interested in quantum metrology applications. So okay. that's all about the science of measurement. And so things like, like super precise magnetic field sensors. So yeah, that's a little overview. So is your work more of a basic research, trying to understand the very basic phenomena, or is it more trying to really develop the technologies and kind of bridging the technology world and the basic science world? Definitely bridging the gap. It's mm -hmm. actually a really lovely mixture. So the study I'm just wrapping up now is what I would call a fundamental physics experiment. But the stuff that I'm sort of We'll be finishing towards the end of the year. That's more on the material science and materials engineering side of things. I'm fabricating devices um, that I will then look at the properties in my experiment after that. So it's like a lovely mixture of things. And I guess I narrow down because I focus on one material called indium antimonide, which has super extreme properties, which make it really interesting. But it's a it's a bit of a pain to work with at times, so not many people have studied it. So it's kind of quite a new um, area to, to look into, which is exciting. Yeah, exactly. This is very exciting to work on something that is so not well known, right? Mm. But on the other hand, it brings a lot of challenges. You mentioned working with a difficult material. I guess you have to develop a lot of things entirely for the first time by yourself how has it been working on such topic like do you get a lot of support from your supervisor are you free to explore different avenues how does this kind of work yeah work <laughs> <laughs> so my supervisor has been working with indium tumonide since his phd so he's really knowledgeable about the subject and we also have a group that we work in at the University of Cardiff. Mm -hmm. They also have a small group that have quite a few PhDs working on this material as well. And within uh, the department at Surrey, I work with a lot of the electrical engineers and materials engineers. Although they don't specifically have experience with the material I work with, they have experience the apparatus that I work with. I use a piece of equipment called a focused ion beam to do a lot of my fabrication. It basically just shoots charged atoms at a surface and it can either uh, dig holes in things or it can build up material. It's probably my favourite piece of equipment that I work with and my <laughs> colleagues have been you know absolutely fab at training me on it and whenever something goes wrong I can be like hey this weird thing is happening is that normal and they can be like well I've, I've heard of it happening in gallium arsenide so yeah a lot of collaboration um goes on even though I'm the only PhD in my department working on this specific material that's very good. I mean, that's exciting that you have support and space to really develop as a scientist and to become very independent. Yeah, you mentioned engineers helping you out, but I guess you also do a lot of engineering yourself. Was it something that you had training before during your master's or was it something that you really started to do and learn during your PhD? During my PhD, when I was doing my master's, I wanted to be allowed to go into their clean room and be making the devices and then testing them and then you know doing the whole process but because of health and safety and my internship was nine months so essentially we didn't get a chance to do that so I was keen to 
uh, get in there with with the fabrication during my PhD. And it's been a great skill. Like I'd never used a scanning electron microscope before my PhD. And now I must have taken hundreds and hundreds of images with it. Those sort of skills that I've really been able to develop, which has been fab. That's amazing. Coming back to the topic of your work, the semiconductors. So if I understood correctly, they have been studied, but a lot about them is not known. And this application for quantum physics, is it something that is being more and more established? Because the usual use for them is actually not in this field, right? So semiconductors have been sort of a core of condensed matter physics for many years. The most common semiconductor is silicon. And of course, all of our electronics are pretty much made up of silicons. A, a lot of our tech infrastructure is already based on semiconductor materials. And there's been a lot of research into the electronic side of things. It's this spin aspect that's the newer thing. And that's kind of what's really exciting is taking this type of material that's relatively well known and then pushing the boundaries in, into a sort of new new paradigm. Okay, the interesting thing about using spin as well as like electron charge is that we can potentially encode a lot more data and information within a single electron because of the quantum nature of spin. So it, it could really push the boundaries, um, especially when we're looking at things like quantum computing. How easy it is to manipulate the spin during your research? I don't know if you get what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do, yeah. The bottom line is it is incredibly difficult to control spin because it's a sort of quantum mechanical property. Quantum decoherence um, comes into things very quickly. So I have to conduct my experiments at very low temperatures, usually around four Kelvin, because temperature can affect the system and, and you ju it just washes out any quantum effects that you can see. And also there's a property called quantum lifetime. And for most materials, this is very, very short. So I haven't actually got to the stage yet where I've been able to control electron spin, but I have developed methods for sort of observing electron spin. So you can record it and then study how it behaves depending on the fabrication of your design? Yeah. And one thing that I'm sort of in the middle of looking at is a nanostructure called a quantum point contact. It's basically this really tiny constriction that we make. And when you pass an electron through it, theoretically, and there have been a few experimental studies as well, you can do what's called spin polarization. It should deflect electrons of one kind of spin in one direction and the other kind of spin in the other direction. In theory, but nobody's demonstrated with what we call 100% fidelity yet. And that is something that I was hoping to do for my PhD, but I think that might have to be passed on to the next student now because I've spent a lot of time sort of refining my fabrication techniques. The sort of the scope of things has had to be taken down a notch, um, mostly because of disruption from the pandemic of things. But it's still really exciting to lay the lay the groundwork for, for that kind of work. Of course. I mean, it's, it's very cutting edge work and It takes a lot of time to develop this this technologies, and I think you moved forward a lot. So I mm -hmm. think that's super cool. And and you know, also we have a limited time to do our PhD. So of course we would like to do so 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 much, but it has to be feasible within the time frame that we are given for the project. Yeah. and there's so many little like side routes that I could take and that I would love to take but you just have to be pragmatic about it and say okay I need to finish this at some point <laughs> yeah yeah it's, um, it's very difficult 
So I was wondering, because you have the background put in on your picture right now, <laughs> what is it? Is it your room where you design something? What am I seeing? Uh, I'll give you out of the way a bit, you can see. So this is a big magnet. <laughs> a lot of my measurements are done using an external magnetic field because that interacts with the electron spin. This is actually a magnet in the Netherlands that we had some experimental time on in the beginning of 2020. It's actually in the floor, the magnet, and there's this big stick that, that you put your tiny chip in with your device on and it goes all the way down into the floor into this magnet and it's cooled down with liquid nitrogen and helium um, to very low temperatures. I love this picture because it has all of these cool sample sticks that kind of look like lightsabers in the background. Not great for a podcast but... <laughs> no, I, I will take a picture and then people can ah, see. Excellent, excellent. Uh, but I think it's kind of cool that you have this as a background and people can really see how your work looks like. Because you know Spin sounds very like something that we can try to imagine, but we cannot really mm. see in the way to kind of understand very easily. And then that's the thing. The scale of your equipment is very big, but then your chip is actually very tiny, right? It's yeah, like exactly. what, nano scale? Yeah, the, the device on the chip will be nano scale. The, the chip itself is probably about five millimeters, and that's what we connect we connect teeny tiny wires, which is another incredibly fiddly task that I have to do, onto <laughs> these sort of nanoscale devices. It's, yeah, part of the job. <laughs> do you like this part of the job? Do you like the fabrication? Yeah, I really enjoy it. I, my favorite parts are fabrication and the, doing the actual measurements. Although, you know, I like a bit of writing and analysis as well. I'm a scientist. I really enjoy the idea of bridging the basic science to the technology and I really feel like it's an important thing that also shows you more how applicable your work is and gives you a bit of perspective. Yeah, I was wondering how important it was for you when you were looking for your project to have something that would translate into something more applicable or was it more about the actually the basic science aspect that, that drove you to this place? It's a both because my master's uh, sort of experience was uh, in an industry lab. I knew that I was quite interested in applications. So the programs that I applied for were all very experimental. But I, the program that I'm in at the moment, I think, is sort of the most applicable to future technologies. So, yeah, it was definitely one of the big factors that I wanted to not just be doing fundamental physics, but also be looking towards the engineering side as well. In your master's, you mentioned you worked with semiconductors as well, mm. and you worked on also applications in technology. I guess you didn't have to set up so many yeah, experiments. Like You were just working more on applicable side, right? Yeah, it was that there was a much sort of stronger basis there already um, for my master's. So embarking on a PhD was much more going out into the unknown, which is part of why it's exciting, but also why it's difficult. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. And you did it also <laughs> at the University of Surrey or was it? It, yes, it was, I, right? I did my undergrad at Surrey as well. It was the four year MFIS, so sort of a BSc and MSc like kind integrated. of smushed together, uh -huh. integrated type thing. I did apply to other places, but I just 
this project really got me hooked. So yeah, yeah. that's that's good. I mean, <laughs> the most important part of the PhD, I think, is to really connect with your project because it requires mm. so much work and effort, and then you have to commit for a long time. So it's important to feel like this is your thing. Mm. So was it always a plan to end up in quantum physics or in condensed matter physics? Or were you interested in other things at the beginning of your master's? Yeah, I guess I've been quite interested in quantum physics since I was a teenager. But I always felt I wasn't smart enough to do it, unfortunately. Uh, But it's a quite complicated subject and I was always a bit worried I wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, But when I went to do my degree, I sort of did a kind of scattergun approach and tried modules because we had optional modules as well as compulsory ones. So I was like, I'm going to try a bit of this. I'm going to try a bit of that. I'm going to see what I like. And the condensed matter physics and the quantum physics was was what I was most engaged with. So that's what I went with. And, And then in my placement a lot of my colleagues were encouraging me uh, they were seeing how much I was enjoying the research aspect and saying oh Daisy you should you should do a PhD if you want to carry on in sort of quantum technology research so their encouragement really helped me a lot and that's sort of the main reason why I did push on with the PhD because I'm not sure that without that encouragement I think I would have not had the confidence to apply so was this issue about feeling not confident enough a problem that is very common, especially in male-dominated fields as is physics, either very openly or very hidden stereotypes or like gender bias? Mm. Was this what was affecting you a lot? Yeah, I think the the gender stereotyping was definitely one aspect of it and not having that many role models who I could relate to in physics, I guess, in general, especially in sort of this more technology side of physics and condensed matter. You do see a lot, well, not a lot of astrophysicists, but I feel like there are more astrophysics female role models perhaps than in in my field. Yeah, I think that that was a big, a big factor and just general imposter syndrome that I think everybody in academia, uh, whatever your gender, but... Of course, yeah, we all have been there. We all felt like we are somehow not good enough. But I'm glad you found people who encouraged you to do this. And I actually think this is very very cool that your decision it was really driven also by other people realizing how good you are at what you do and Mm. just kind of giving you a bit more boost to the confidence and yeah Yeah. it sounds like a like you had a really nice group of people around you to to really help you through this I mean it's a very difficult decision to do the PhD can be done quickly but then considering how long it takes and how much effort and sacrifice it really does take over the years. It's it's good that you had um, support when you were making this decision. Yeah, for sure. How is your family reacting to you wanting to do a PhD? Is your family also related to academia? Are they also in science or are they completely out in different fields? So both of my parents are vets and my dad actually has a PhD in veterinary pathology. So he's 
published a couple of papers and a textbook, but he left academia very early on in his career. So yeah, it, it was always sort of very much in the family. And my sibling has now just started their PhD. Aww. So um, yeah, my, my parents are always very encouraging of us wanting to pursue science. I'm thrilled that I wanted to become a physicist. They're really engaged with what I do, even though they're more on the biology and medicine side of things. Um, especially my dad, he he really loves physics. So I think he loves that I'm a physicist and everything, which is, you know, it makes such a difference having the support from my family because I know that, you know, they're on my team and, and they're always proud of whatever I do. But really lucky in that respect and not being sort of first generation at all as well. It makes a big difference. Like my dad was saying to me when I started my PhD, oh, it's a long haul and it's a marathon, not a sprint. And he was giving me all these tips and, and all those things. This this is super important. I, I'm actually a first gen and everybody was like, yeah, you have to get higher degree, then your life will be easier. So there was this kind of connection of, you know, you're going to do better than us because you're going to um, mm. have higher education. But no one really knew how, how difficult this life also is, how difficult it's also to be successful. It's not like you get a degree and this guarantees that you're going to have a very easy life. And yeah. I feel like sometimes these this two visions of how my life looks like and how it actually is are crushing because they are just mm. not seeing it the way that I see it and I live it. So having this, I, I guess it was a bit more honest, but then you were a bit better prepared, right? Yeah, definitely. And I remember sort of reading a lot around it from people's blogs and on social media. And I think the fact that we have these ways of sharing experiences is really powerful, especially for first-gen people like you who don't have that sort of personal family connection. It definitely, I think, prepared me for what was ahead. So were you actually thinking about becoming a vet or was it never interesting for you? No, it was never on the car. So I absolutely adore animals. And that's probably the main reason I don't want to be a vet, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah I get it. You don't want to see too much, you know. No, I'm, I'm pretty squeamish. And I've seen enough pictures of diseased animals in my life from my parents that <laughs> I was like, uh, I don't think that's for me. Yeah, I get, I get your point. I get your point. We discussed that you started liking physics already early on and then you went on to study it was there any particular reason that you got interested in physics was this a uh, high school teacher did you start yeah reading some books was it actually your parents who showed you a bit of this word how did it actually start like very early on if we can go back to this moment so i think my parents definitely had a big impact on my love of science i remember sort of at the beginning of high school my dad would always help me with science projects and stuff and we would go really in depth <laughs> things I, I gave a presentation about animal cells I think Ooh. in my first <laughs> few years of high school and I remember my science teacher being like I think this is too high level so <laughs> that was always really encouraged but I, lo I love creative subjects as well like music and art as well were, were big passions of mine so balancing that creative side and the scientific side I was kind of torn on what I wanted to do but I think 
by the time I was 15 or 16, I decided science was definitely where I wanted to go for my career. And actually, research is perfect because I think you have to be creative to be a researcher. That's something that people don't realise as much. Certainly those sort of 15, 16 years, I really loved chemistry and physics in particular. And I had a chemistry class, I remember, where we were learning about electron shells mm-hmm. in the atom and that's when spin came up um and I wanted to learn more from my teacher and, and she said oh you should go and talk to the physics department they'll be able to tell you more about electron spin so I went and chatted to them and and my teacher recommended me a book about quantum mechanics that was sort of a, po- a popular science book mm-hmm. so it was at a level that I could read and that was kind of my entry into quantum physics and sort of just being really passionate about it I'd always been pegged as kind of the physics girl throughout (laughs) high school because I I went to an all-girls school and not that many people enjoyed physics (laughs) at my my school so I kind of stood out because I enjoyed it and I really excelled at it so I guess I just kind of embraced that and and I, I think my love of physics just comes down to the fact that it's so fundamental and you use mathematics to explain the world and then physics kind of underpins chemistry and that lets us look at sort of larger systems. And I don't know, I feel like it all interlinks. I find that really fascinating that, you know, you go down into the details and you'll eventually get to physics. Yeah, that's true. It really allows you to understand the very, very tiny basics of of everything around, really. I mean, you need maths as a tool to translate it and like explain it and mm. measure it but physics is really more about the understanding the the very basics i agree yeah it's fascinating okay now you are as you said going into your last year trying to wrap things up i guess working on mm-hmm. on the dissertation and the papers yeah. at some point within this time what are your further plans what do you want to do? I've, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. I would love to potentially work at a national lab. That's my sort of top choice, sort of a bridge between academia and industry. Uh, but longer term, I think eventually going out into industry. But I'm, I'm passionate about teaching in higher education as well. So I want to keep my university ties to, to maybe do some guest lecturing and, and things like that and continue with my science communication work because I think that's really important to me as a scientist mm-hmm. um, communicating with the general public as well as my academic peers. I, I think not enough of us do it. You mentioned being passionate about teaching. You're actually doing another degree right now in teaching, right? Yeah, so I'm doing a graduate certificate in teaching and learning. It's very part-time over 18 months. I'm halfway through it now and it's really great. It's exploring the theoretical side of, of teaching and then applying that into practice and it get it gets me out of my department. I get to talk to postgraduate researchers and, and teaching fellows from other areas like psychology and languages and and it's I think it's really good for me to talk to people who have a really different perspective on teaching we're quite set in our ways and and we can we can experiment a bit you know that's what physics is about that's true and also trying to explain physics to someone who is not a scientist of natural sciences or it's it's much harder right you have to find the language that's what you also do in your science communication but I yeah. think it takes uh, practice, and the more practice you get, the better you'll be. 
I am really interested actually in applying teaching in science communication as well. I think so many of the concepts overlap there. My interest is really driven by my experience in undergrad and sort of feeling that a lot of my professors kind of forgot what it was like to be a student and they weren't necessarily making things accessible to us and wanting to make sure that you know, if I was ever in that situation, I'd be able to have lots of ways of explaining things and exploring stuff with students so they didn't feel like blinded with science, as it were, which I think can sometimes be the case, especially with that sort of lecture and blackboard type style of teaching. It can be discouraging when you don't get Mm. the concept because then you start thinking, okay, am I the only one who doesn't get it? And then also... Of course, it depends on the professor, but some professors are not very encouraging when it comes to asking any type of question. So then you're like, should I ask about it or am I just not getting it and everyone is getting it and and then imposter Mm. syndrome kicks in. And, you know, some PhD programs, they require that you do some teaching and that Mm. you gain experience in this, but some don't. And then we end up in a situation where, I mean, it can really change somebody's perspective on your field depending how you teach it can show them how amazing your field is or it can just completely discourage them towards it and they can just change their entire plans and I think we tend to forget about this when we teach Mm. I'm actually yeah I'm very impressed that you're doing this and I think this will just make your further career regardless where you end up better and more approachable to to people around you Mm. Thank you. That's very kind of you. To put that sort of into practice, I do laboratory demonstrating. That's kind of the teaching format that I am in, teaching assistant in labs and, you know, doing justice by my my students and helping them learn and helping them have that confidence. If I can do something for my students like my colleagues did for me in my my placement by by believing me, I I worry that we lose so many brilliant minds um, just from a bad teacher. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what I meant before. There are so many people who have the mind, but then there are so many things in academia that can discourage them. Like it can be teaching, yeah. it can be a toxic environment, it can be gender bias, it, it can be a lot of different things, but we need to try to make it better because times when we were assuming that people who survive this hard school of academia will be the best is really over. This is not the way to go about this. It's not healthy and and I think we we don't really need this anymore. Mm. But of totally course, agree. it's it's quite perpetuated in mm. in universities and in general in science because these yeah. people who survived it, some of them at least think that if they teach their students like this, then they will also be successful, which, yeah, it can it can break people, which is a stupid mm. thing. Yeah, totally. Coming back to your initiatives, I think we can go into more details of this. I mentioned before that you have the Instagram page and the blog where you are sharing more of your life as a PhD student and also science and your science communication ideas. I really had a look through some of your articles and I've seen you on Instagram already a while back and I've Mm. also seen your short talk about your project which was really really entertaining (laughs) and I think it's, it's really cool that you do this. I think it's really good for people out there to see how 
the life of a PhD student is and also what kind of work you're doing and trying to explain it mm -hmm. in an easy way, I guess, gives you some sort of an outlet. <laughs> but I was yeah. wondering, how did this start? Like, what was the the main drive at the beginning to do this? Yeah, when I started my PhD, a lot of my friends and family were kind of, oh, what do you actually get up to? Like, it's one thing kind of trying to explain it over the telephone or whatever. But I decided I'd just start posting little bits and bobs on my Instagram and just be like, oh, well, you can see some pictures of ah, nice. me actually in a lab. And before I knew it, it had sort of picked up steam and I had kind of discovered the science communication community and the PhD community on Instagram. And, and it sort of grew from there. And I share stuff that I'm up to. Obviously, I can't share too many details on my like specifics of my work mm -hmm. until it's published, but I try to explore a lot of the theory in an accessible way and it's that's helped me so much because if I can explain it to someone who's not in my field and they understand it that means I probably understand it fairly well sometimes I don't do it sometimes I get extra questions like I didn't quite understand that but that's just so good of a learning experience in terms of me you know I can get better at making sure I'm pitching at the right level and all of these things and I love how you can have discussions with people and you can take it into different directions because of commenting and all of that kind of thing but yeah I guess as well as that I also share some more general PhD stuff like I'm not scared of talking about my mental health and about being autistic and things like that I think that it's sort of a nice outlet to talk about both the physics side of things and the realities of academia, I guess, both the positives and negatives, because I do think there's so many wonderful things about academia, like collaboration and sharing knowledge and all these things. So that's where it came from, really, was just trying to help some people I know see what I was getting up to. I actually think that it's it's very admirable that you are being so honest and decide to be so vulnerable as well with people, mm. because Instagram has a bit of a mixed situation we have a very idealized accounts which make us feel sometimes really bad about ourselves because yeah. we are nowhere yeah. close to this like I don't wear makeup every time to the lab and I don't look so great when I'm pipetting and then on the other hand there are these accounts that I really appreciate that are very raw and very honest I think it takes courage to to open up I guess your experiences must have been quite nice in a way that people react, otherwise you would probably not be doing it. But I was wondering, in this whole process of sharing also your personal details, discussing your mental health, discussing how, you know, you being autistic affects your everyday work. Yeah, were you worried and did you ever get negative comments about that or were people actually open and, and understanding? Yeah, I guess I was worried, especially disclosing my autism diagnosis. I think I have first talked about my autism on like Autism Awareness Day which was fairly supportive. I There's always on those kinds of posts where I talk about mental health and autism and disability, there's always the odd person who says something negative or something kind of ignorant, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. But overwhelmingly, there's so many positives that, I mean, it, it's hard to manage sometimes those negative comments, but I do try to like focus on all the people who 
are relating to what I'm saying. I get a lot of like private messages from people talking about how they can really relate or like maybe their child has autism and that's really helped them kind of see that it's not, it won't necessarily hold them back in things. But yeah, I mean, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it really, you know, affects me and triggers off my depression. But I do think that it does a lot of good. There is quite a large community of people, especially talking about mental health in academia now. And I think that the solidarity in that uh, really encourages me because being part of that community and, and adding my voice into the voices of many, I think it feels like worthwhile. I've met a lot of wonderful people. I like to discuss the hard topics sometimes because I don't think we're going to change things if we don't. Um, if we just ignore stuff, it's just going to stay the same and, and people are still going to be, you know, in this toxic environment, which is not great. <laughs> I definitely agree. I think it's a very important mission. And you and other people who do this, I think it changes the perception of people also on on many things, on having mental problems and just being in academia, on being autistic and and doing science and being successful scientists. Also, one of the reasons why I started this podcast was actually this, to, to create a platform that is honest about the good things and the bad things and just mm. to give other people a way to see that there's no one right path. We all have very different stories and we all go through some things which in the end end up being very similar so that actually we can relate to many things and when we feel alone, there's a lot of people that go through this. Mm. I think it's an important mission and I'm, I'm glad you're doing this and I'm also glad that you're doing this other account that we mentioned at the beginning, which is called Neurodivergent in STEM. This is something yeah. that you are running kind of in a similar idea as, as this podcast in a way that you share the stories of people. And I guess you also managed to meet a lot of people through that and create a community. I guess you wanted to start it to create some space for people to share. Yeah. Has this surprised you how this developed and what were the good things that came to you from that, from creating this account? Well, first of all, like, I think exactly what you're saying, like, that you have this podcast of making space. I'm totally there with it. And I think it's amazing that you've created a space as well. Yeah, the idea was essentially trying to create more of a community. And I was seeing so much positive sort of feedback from me sharing my own personal experiences. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware that I'm just one person and I have my own experience, but there's so many other people within the neurodivergent community that, you know, I couldn't possibly tell their stories so I wanted them to tell their own stories and create this space where people can come and they can submit a story it's like a little form that they fill out and then we put it on our website which is neurodivergentinstem.com and put it on Instagram and Twitter as well um, and we also have a Facebook and a LinkedIn group for people to join if they want to as well yeah it's been really lovely just I get so inspired every time somebody submits a contribution reading about where they've come from, what they've achieved, um, the challenges that they've pushed through. Definitely. It's just, I just get so inspired by it. And when I started it, I felt that I was sort of, obviously with my own personal account, it's all about me. And I was a little bit like, oh, I'm, I'm so tired of me. I really wanted to like focus on the community and sharing other people's stories. It was really driven by that, wanting to show the diversity within 
the neurodivergent community within STEM fields. And we've had so many great people from physics like me to biology, chemists, yeah, from all around the world as well. And I just hope that it keeps growing and we keep adding more stories and that it becomes a resource that people can use to feel less alone like you were talking yeah, about and to and, connect yeah with other to connect. people this is really the power of the social media that i like and i really enjoy you know the fact that we can meet someone across the world and just having the similar experience and feeling inspired i feel so so motivated when i read these stories as well of course i cannot relate in many ways but it just gives you a bit of perspective that is not just your own and it, it really shows you also what's worth fighting for because as you said if we don't share and we don't speak up about these things nothing will change and mm. I think the important thing for us just being in academia is to, to have a certain position or like to have a certain voice against or toward things that have to change and this is something that I try to do in this podcast, in this part yeah. that I call Room for Improvement. Mm -hmm. And I find it very inspiring hearing what my guests think is important to change and important to them and that is not working very well. So I was wondering what you would put on the map, what you think is, is still lacking. Well, the main thing is, is certainly the sort of equality and diversity aspect of things. I wouldn't want to put one thing prioritized above the others. There's so many uh, fabulous initiatives um, that have been coming up in recent years. You know, all aspects of EDI from LGBTQ, diversity like me, disability, ethnicity, all of these things. And I think that we're starting to realize sort of the systemic barriers that have been in place for marginalized people. And I'd love to see more understanding and empathy and more things in place to support those who are at a disadvantage um, compared with others and linked in with that um, mental health support. If there's one thing that unites marginalised groups, it's probably that we're more likely to suffer from mental health conditions, not yes. that people who aren't marginalised can't be, but I do think that there's a high prevalence of mental health conditions like anxiety and depression in the academic community and the only way we're going to help combat those, that is to acknowledge it, talk about it and try and put some things in place that, that make the environment and the culture less toxic. Things like chronic stress that, that we all Definitely. suffer and stuff like pressure to publish and I'd love to see a future where work-life balance was kind <laughs> of at the top of everyone's list of priorities yeah. and and that we were putting stuff in place that, that didn't leave people behind. To not stigmatise. Yeah, I definitely agree. This is something that comes up a lot, both accessibility of, of academia and of research, which yeah. is very lacking. And then the mental health aspects. I think there's definitely more discussion, but I would say mm. it is still very, very long road ahead of us. And, you know, there is always this thing about you want to be open about it, but there's a lot of discussion how you can damage your job prospects or your work mm. situation when you speak about it, which I think mm. is also very damaging to the culture, very toxic. As long as people feel afraid to say openly that they are struggling with depression or they need to take sick leave just because mm. they cannot deal, they are in burnout it has to change and I think this is something yeah. that is very tricky at least for me I struggle with a chronic disease that is relatively recently diagnosed like during my mm -hmm. PhD I was diagnosed and 
I'm encountering very different positions of people towards me. It's either mm. very understanding and trying to be accommodating or actually I'm being told to not speak about it, to not share because I can lose job opportunities. And I guess, I mean, I can only assume, but in your case, this is something that you also must have thought about or at least, you know, discussed with people. Yeah. How open can you be about these things and how how to deal with the environment reactions to you being honest about about you? Yeah, I mean, I always worry about this, that I'm damaging my job prospects potentially by my openness. So yeah, I, I can relate certainly to that. And I've had people talk to me about that, strangers, which is always odd. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not relevant to you, what I talk about. <laughs> Why do you care? Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think I want to work for somebody who is happy with openness and will be accommodating and provide reasonable adjustments that are needed and hopefully there are enough available opportunities that that won't sort of damage my long-term job prospects. I think that I'm open to being flexible with where I end up and really high on the list of stuff that I care about in terms of an employer is their sort of diversity and inclusion opinions and I think that that's all wrapped up in that but yeah obviously I'm in a privileged position because I have some fairly sought after skills in quite a up-and-coming industry and I appreciate that other people especially multiply marginalized people are, you know aren't in that same position but that's even more reason for me to speak up because I feel relatively <laughs> comfortable enough doing so and I've kind of can't really step back now because I've been so open about it and it's out there on the internet I mean I don't worry about it so much these days and it's actually brought me a lot of opportunities so yeah in a long-term scenario you want to be comfortable at your workplace and you mm. don't want to feel the need of constantly pretending and I think the culture is changing, so I'm hoping these things will become less and less prevalent. Negative comments when you admit to having mental health problems, but mm. the more we speak about it, the more people will change their mind and also people will feel less alone when they yeah. actually don't have the courage yet to say anything. I always go back to, I, I do my advocacy work for those people who message me and saying, you know, I can't talk openly about my diagnosis or, or whatever, but seeing you talking about it just sort of gives me hope or, or, and things along those lines. I'm always trying to sort of pave the way for for people coming up behind me. And locally at my university as well, I've been working a lot with our EDI team to to try and put provisions in for, for neurodivergent students and, and things like that. So it always comes down to like, well, I'm making a difference to some people and that's... That's, that's amazing. Yeah, that's already <laughs> yeah. so big. So how about we, um, to this last, a bit more relaxed part of the interview, which usually covers a bit of a cool science. Yeah, I like to ask my guests about either the cool science of someone else's that you find really interesting or mm -hmm. about cool science that you would like to do if your resources were unlimited. So Ooh. we can cover both. I think we have <laughs> enough time. Is there something that you would like to share so that people can also follow up? Yeah. So research of other people. I'm constantly inspired by other people's <laughs> research, to be honest. 
One thing that I think is really cool is um, the National Physical Laboratory do a lot of work on atomic clocks. And I think atomic clocks are really awesome. It's all about using quantum stuff to do time stuff. Yeah, definitely look into that if you enjoy metrology type things. And it's it's all to do with precision timekeeping and things like that, which can be useful for stuff like satellites and GPS. And in terms of my own, if I had unlimited resources, I would definitely want to look into still semiconductor spintronics probably, but also look into the kind of photonics and optoelectronics side of things. So going back to my lasers path, I guess. And I'd love to do work on fabricating different types of qubits for quantum computing. I think that would just be awesome. Something I'm really interested in is an effect called proximity-induced superconductivity, uh, (laughs) which is a mouthful, um, but it's something that I would extend my PhD to do that if I could, but there won't be the time. So it's all about putting a superconductor in close contact with a semiconductor, and then you can induce superconductivity within that and and do all sorts of crazy things that I don't have time to go into. You should Um, uh, check out one of our podcast episodes because we had a guest who talks on superconducting qubits. So I will send you a link. Please do. I'll have to get in touch. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) It's really cool when you can find a way to bridge your work with some other work that is interesting, right? And try to find new applications and to to go a step further but I guess yeah having unlimited resources would really help (laughs) in this field is a lot of risks taking and Mm. a lot of things might not play out because it's so cutting edge it really requires a lot of investments that may not always pay back as good as you'd like and and getting grants is quite challenging (laughs) Um. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Getting money to do this kind of high-risk project is always tricky. I I agree. The last question. So I usually like to ask my guests about their scientific idols or the people that are inspiration to them. And if you could have dinner or coffee with someone who either inspired you a lot or you just like to meet this person, either a person that is still alive or no longer alive... Who would that be? It would definitely be Emmy Noether, a mathematician slash theoretical physicist, and she is completely awesome. I wrote about her in my personal statement for going to university. Interesting. And I've, okay. I've like read so many books about her. Just such an incredible figure, for, especially for women in in mathematics and physical sciences. Like she broke so many glass ceilings. <laughs> it's mad. And an incredible mind. Um, she did a lot of work on supersymmetry and things. And I just mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. would want to pick her brains. Yeah, just if you haven't heard of her, definitely look her up and, and find out more. Would you like to talk to her about her work or your work? Like, would you like to tell her about where we are now and just see what she'd think? Probably both, Ooh. right? Yeah, definitely <laughs> both. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear her take on quantum computing, actually. I think that would be yeah. really fascinating. Be but cool. also, I would just be like, please explain that all of this stuff, amazing stuff that you've done, because uh, sometimes it goes a little bit over my head. Just, just meeting someone who has been a role model, it would have been super cool, right? Mm, I definitely, definitely agree. All right. Thank you for sharing all of this. I am 
extremely happy that I had a chance to meet you. I feel like starting this podcast has given me a chance to interact with so many people that I wouldn't have a chance to interact with. And I'm glad we can share your research and also your your story and your initiatives with people out there. Make sure to check out Daisy's blog and also her sites and um, reach out to her <laughs> also. I'm sure she she's going to love it. Thank you, Daisy. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. It was lovely to meet you and chat with you and everything. Bye. Bye.